Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, July 10th. It may only be July 10th, 2023, but make no mistake that 2024 election year politics are well underway. The Republican Party announced over the weekend, did you hear this, that the first vote, the Iowa caucuses, will, for the first time ever, be on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, the federal holiday, January 15th. In case you're thinking... That's rich, the overwhelmingly white conservative end of affirmative action celebrating Iowa Republican Party scheduling their presidential caucus on King Day. Is that to increase turnout with a white grievance hook? No, the Iowa Republican Party chair, Jeff Kaufman, says it's doing that to honor the memory of Dr. King. Maybe. But the Associated Press also quotes Kaufman saying the committee had not considered the possibility of the caucus falling on MLK Day before reaching their decision. So which is worse, purposely holding the Republican caucuses on King Day or forgetting it was even a thing? We report, you decide. And as for those Supreme Court decisions at the end of the term, New Jersey's Democratic Governor Phil Murphy said on Meet the Press yesterday on NBC that, yeah, he hates them, but that doesn't mean his party should run on adding justices or imposing term limits. Yeah, as painful as this radical court has been, taking away rights and freedoms, I'm in the camp that you you play within the rules. And I have to say that's a tough conclusion given... Mm -hmm the extremity of whether it's LGBTQ decisions, abortion, uh, student loans, affirmative action, uh, one, one gut punch after another, I think you still play within the rules. Governor Murphy with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press. But what can the Democrats do? What can colleges and employers who value diversity do? What can Americans struggling with student loan debt do within the rules? the court has laid down. We'll talk about that and more now with Congressman Richie Torres, Democrat from the Bronx, his 15th New York congressional district, often referred to as the poorest by income in the country. Torres is on the House Financial Services Committee, among other things, and as one of the first two openly gay black men ever elected to Congress, along with Mondaire Jones in 2020, At least two of those Supreme Court rulings are relevant to groups he belongs to. Congressman Torres, always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. Always a pleasure. Let's start on those Supreme Court decisions. The court decided six to three that taking race into account to build a diverse class at college is unconstitutional. How much do you agree or disagree? Look, the Supreme Court's decision is a tragedy for America as a multiracial democracy. Um, The loss of affirmative action is going to lead to less diversity in higher education, which will mean less diversity in every facet of American society because higher education is a pipeline into the leadership of our society. And so the decision undercuts uh, America as a multiracial democracy. And I find it appalling that Justice Clarence Thomas in particular would dismantle a program that enabled him to be a student at Yale Law School and then ultimately a member of the Supreme Court. It's the cruelest irony. Well, you mentioned Thomas, but, you know, a New York Times article on Thomas this weekend 
I don't know if you saw it, or you might know this already, noted that he believes that after he graduated from Yale Law School, he wasn't getting the offers from the high-paying law firms he really wanted to work for. He didn't want to go into the judiciary, apparently. He wanted to work for a high-paying corporate law firm, uh, but he wasn't getting those offers. He says, according to the article, because they saw him as an affirmative action applicant who therefore wouldn't be as qualified as the white applicants who had the same education. So Thomas argues, beyond the constitutional questions that the court ruled on, that affirmative action can add a modern kind of disadvantage to black Americans' ability to compete in the workplace, and they'll be better off in the long run without it, and therefore be seen as more equal to other applicants with the same qualifications. Um, Are you aware of that? argument from Clarence Thomas, and do you totally disagree with him on that, given what he says his life experience has been? I mean, I mean, his life experience is that he was appointed as the chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and then became a judge in the D.C. Circuit Court, and then a justice on the Supreme Court, and a former student at Yale University. So his life experience would demonstrate otherwise, that affirmative action can create opportunities for people of color in a country that has a long and ugly history of racism. And, you know, Clarence Thomas purports to be a champion of a colorblind America, but the term colorblind has become a code word for turning a blind eye to race and racism and pretending that race no longer matters in America. The court did say that applicants could write in their essays about how race has affected their lives and admissions offices could take that into account as part of considering people as individuals. Have you thought about how big a loophole that might be? Like, should every strategic applicant of color include something like that in their materials? Since everyone is affected by their race in the context of this country, everyone can theoretically say how. Look, it speaks to the incoherence of the court's decision, because on one hand, the court said you cannot check a box identifying your race. But on the other hand, the court said it's perfectly fine to communicate your racial lived experience in an essay. But then the court proceeded to state that that cannot be an indirect path to affirmative action. So the logic of the decision is all over the place. It's a mess. Um, what's, What's most frustrating for me is the double standard here. You know, the far right in American politics has long been on a crusade against affirmative action, but there's never been a similar crusade against legacy admissions. And unlike affirmative action, which seeks to advantage the historically disadvantaged, legacy admissions is affirmative action for wealthier white students. It it privileges the already privileged. And I've never seen the far right take legal action against legacy admissions. So why the double standard? Is that something that you all in Congress can address, banning legacy admissions as a disparate impact, racially discriminatory practice? Uh, To my knowledge, Congress has the authority to ban legacy admissions. Um, My colleague, Jamal Bowman, has legislation to that effect, which I fully support. Um, And it is presently the subject of litigation, but it's long overdue. I mean, legacy admissions... Uh, is is far more destructive and 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 has no place and it's and the universities admit that it's all about fundraising it's all about reinforcing privilege by the way any reaction to the iowa republican party holding the iowa caucuses for the first time on mlk day next january do you find that racially provocative in any way 
Uh, it speaks to the Republican notion of colorblindness, that Republicans are not even aware of MLK's birthday. So you're referring to that line uh, that the AP quoted, the head of the Iowa Republican Party is saying that they were just looking for the which Monday in January they were going to do it. They didn't realize that was even Martin Luther King Day. You know, the Republican Party is an Orwellian universe. The Republicans often pervert the legacy of Dr. King to undermine everything that Dr. King fought for. And I just find it galling. How about the court allowing the wedding website designer to refuse gay couple customers? The court held that it's her right not to be forced to publish, in effect, a religious position that's contrary to her own belief, uh, apparently, that gay marriage is a sin. Can you see it in the context of free expression? Well, one of the greatest threats to LGBTQ equality is the weaponization of the First Amendment, both the free speech clause and the free exercise clause, the religious liberty clause. You know, as far as I'm concerned, the First Amendment means protection from discrimination. It does not mean the freedom to discriminate. And if the court continues to reinterpret the First Amendment as a license to discriminate, it's going to have implications far beyond the LGBTQ community. It's going to undermine civil rights laws for every protected class and at every level of government. You know, suppose for a moment the petitioner in the case, Laurie Smith, had a sincerely held belief that interracial marriage was wrong and refused to create websites for interracial couples. According to the logic of the Supreme Court, she would have a First Amendment right to discriminate against interracial couples. That to me is absurd. And, you know, since the Civil Rights Act of 1964, we have recognized that every American should be protected from discrimination in the public marketplace when it comes to the provision of goods and services. And this, we're witnessing the Supreme Court reverse a core civil rights principle under the pretense of protecting free speech. How about the court allowing, I mean, I've seen the shoe on the other foot argument, too, in support of that decision. Like, how about a progressive wedding website designer asked to publish a swastika or a MAGA symbol for a couple who wants to hire them to do that and get married in, in that expressive content? If you were the website designer asked to do that, maybe you'd want the right not to as well, or don't you see it as equivalent? I think the difference there is that it does not implicate a protected class, right? So we have, you know, since the Civil Rights Act, we have special protections for classes of Americans who have historically had to face discrimination. Um, and and that's, that's a legacy that we've honored since the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is now being slowly dismantled at the hands of the Supreme Court. Um, maybe it's worth reminding listeners what protected class means, because I think this goes to a ongoing liberal conservative divide that's many decades old about what the civil rights laws, for example, call protected groups in general. You know, do laws guaranteeing equal rights to specific groups rather than to just everybody as one large group, uh, specific groups who have been discriminated against in the past amount to special rights that give them more rights than the straight cis white majority or to men who had all those extra rights in the past? Well, I mean, protected class simply means that we are all, all, all Americans are protected from discrimination in certain categories, in matters of race, sex, um, in the case of employment, gender identity, and sexual orientation, 
religion. Um, so it's not only racial minorities, we're all protected from racial discrimination in matters of housing, employment, and public accommodations. And I worry that's beginning to erode because of the Supreme Court's reinterpretation of the First Amendment. Um, on what you said before about legacy admissions, here's a text from a listener who writes, Howard University, among other HBCUs, has legacy admissions. Ending that limited policy will not solve the problem of creating opportunities in diverse student bodies. It is a false object objective. What do you say to that listener? I mean, Howard University is a historically black college, so even without legacy admissions, it would have ample black representation, so I don't quite understand that argument. Stephen in Harlem, you're on WNYC with Congressman Richie Torres. Hi, Stephen. Hi, thank you for taking my call, and Mr. Torres, I, and the thought of my head was how proud I am of you. Why that applies, I don't know. Uh, my question is about the Supreme Court. Thank you. Uh, if they're not going to add justices to balance this out, it seems to me they're going to go for more regressive and more regressive policies, possibly even after contraception that was decided, what, in Connecticut in the 60s, that, which goes to privacy issues, you know, which is so fundamental, what we thought we had in place. That's my question, and thank you for taking my call again. Thank you very much, Congressman. No, I agree with the caller, and you know it pains me to say this, but you know I see the Supreme Court as one of the greatest challenges to democracy in America. You know I, I find it deeply troubling that the most consequential public policy questions of our time, whether it be gun safety, abortion, affirmative action, are being decided not by elected representatives, not by the president or by Congress or by governors and state legislatures, but increasingly by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is increasingly operating as an unelected super legislature that's bound by no code of ethics. And that's not the form of government that was envisioned by the Constitution. You know, Alexander Hamilton famously said that the judicial branch is supposed to be the least dangerous branch of government. And in many ways, it's become the most dangerous. It is interesting about no code of ethics. Uh, people have been following these stories recently about Justice Alito and Justice Thomas and the money and the gifts they take from wealthy donors who have ties to groups that want to influence the Supreme Court. Apparently, it's okay because they have no official code of ethics for the Supreme Court. Uh, if people want to challenge it, it would have to be in some other way. But we heard Governor Murphy in, in the clip earlier denounce all the same Supreme Court decisions that you're denouncing, but oppose trying to add justices or impose term limits. He said, no, we, we still need to play within the rules, uh, suggesting that those are rules that have been sufficiently enshrined to not be challenged. I, I'm curious if you have a position on court reform, either because you think it's the right thing to do for justice or in the context of 2024 election politics, uh, you know, it might look to some like because Democrats don't like recent decisions of the Supreme Court, then they're trying to change the rules, pack the court, whatever. It didn't work for FDR in the 30s. So there's the right and wrong aspect of this and the political aspect. Well, I respectfully disagree with the governor. Um, it's well within the rules for Congress to modify the size of the court. I mean, Congress has the authority to do so, and it's been done at various points 
in American history, and it's part of the checks and balances of our system. So it's well within the rules. Uh, you're free to disagree with it, but it's it's a mischaracterization to claim that it's it's outside the rules or that it's unprecedented. It's ample precedent for it. You know, as far as the politics, um, you know, we saw in 2022, you know, what was supposed to be a red wave became nothing more than a trickle. And I'm convinced that the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe versus Wade set off a pub, an overwhelming public backlash that did a disservice to Republicans and that cost them you know, a, what, what could have been a traditional red wave election. Here's Rodwan, who says he is cycling through Tarrytown. Rodwan, you're on WNYC. Are you on a, I've heard of car phones. Are you on a bike phone? Uh, I, I'm, actually, uh, I'm actually, I used, uh, I was cycling, but now I'm walking. So. Okay. Um, but yes. uh, let me remove my headphones. Yeah, go ahead. And I'll, I'll take that opportunity okay, to now say that on, on yeah. Friday's show, I happened to mention um, the pleasure I had cycling across the oh. um, Tappan Zee Bridge up there between Tarrytown and Nyack. But I neglected exactly. to say that one of the things you can do if people want to take that as a, um, a no-car local excursion because you can take your your bike on the train to Tarrytown is there are good places to eat on either side of the bridge. So that adds to that day. But anyway, there you are on your bike in Tarrytown. Rodwan, <laughs> go ahead. Totally. Thank you very much for taking the calls, Brian. So I have a, I have a, I happen to have a, uh, a personal experience, which made me and my daughter cheer the Supreme court decision when we heard about it. So I'm an immigrant from uh, Morocco. And uh, I, I, since I came here, worked very hard, three jobs, nonstop, like seriously pushed my daughter to reach her full potential. Uh, in high school, she gets uh, A's and et cetera. And then we learned about affirmative action. And then some, we, we were told that sometimes colleges will pick, even though you are qualified, they will pick the person based on color. It was very disappointing because here we are in the U.S. where we're supposed to look beyond color and we are all equal. Uh, we are now faced with a very discouraging uh, uh, event that might happen. Uh, why am I saying this? Because and the federal government, they consider people like me, uh, even though I'm from Africa, they consider us whites. So we don't have a category in the federal government that qualify us to be Middle Easterns. Or minority, so we we are actually in fact a minority. I feel I'm a minority, but we fall into this group of huge pool of supposedly privileged white people, and this puts us at a disadvantage. So for me, naturally, I would uh, cheer any decision to remove all color and remove all legacy, all family names, and let's level the field, let the best win, just like sports. And that's my comment, Congressman. Talk to Radwan. Thank you. Um, well, I, I'm not aware of anyone who considers African immigrants white. Um, uh, so I, I'm, I, I just respectfully disagree with that point. And, you know, th there's a misconception about affirmative action. Uh, there, there is no, there's not a single student in the country who has been admitted solely on the basis of race. Right. The Supreme Court back in the late 70s prohibited the use of racial quotas. Right. The court held that race could only be one factor among many. It could never be the sole factor in admissions. Um, and so that that was the practice for decades before it was recently overturned by the Supreme Court is 
is race is one factor among many, um, but it's not the only factor. And there are far more qualified students to go to a college like Harvard than there are seats available for those students. Uh, so I just feel like there's a misconception that students are gaining admission for the sole reason of race. And that's just a mischaracterization of how affirmative action operates. Right. Not for the sole reason. It's just a factor that can be taken into account. Um, I think the caller is right as far as the U.S. Census is concerned. Um, people from Middle Eastern Arab backgrounds have no box to check on the U.S. Census. They wind up getting considered as white on the census. Um, now, if he, if they have a box for race and he's black from Morocco, then maybe there's something there. But but to that extent, he's right. I think the census said they're going to change that in the future. But but to that extent, he's right, right? I guess the question is, would a college uh, not consider somebody from his family's background uh, a meaningful addition to the diverse class that they're trying to build? The, the, the racial identification is not coming from the college or from the government. It's coming from the individual, right? You as an individual identify yourself racially. Um, it, it's your choice. So if, 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 if you're a black Moroccan and you, you have every right to identify as black and to fill out that box, whether it's a census application or, or a college right. application. Right, and I don't know if there's a box per se on college applications if that uh, mirrors the census or it's more inclusive in that way. Congressman Richie Torres, Democrat from New York's 15th Congressional District in the Bronx, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.